Hello, this is Nahama Goldman Barish, and I am here to talk about Parshat Ekev. I would like to zoom out for a moment and look at a particular concept that appears repeatedly throughout the Book of Darim before zooming back into our Parsha. And the concept of the word that I am going to look at is the word Shema, which, as Rabbi Jonathan Sachs points out, is fundamentally untranslatable into English since it means so many things to hear, to listen, to pay attention, to understand, to internalize, to respond, to obey. It is one of the motif words of the Book of Devarim, where it appears no less than 92 times in different formats, more than in any other book of the Torah. At the end of Moshe's life, he repeatedly tells the people, Shema, listen, heed, pay attention, obey. Hear what I am saying. Hear what God is saying. Listen to what he wants from us. If you would only listen. The most popular usage known throughout Judaism is Shema Yisrael, Hero Israel. And we will come back to the Shema, which is actually the mitzvah that it opens the entire corpus of rabbinic literature. The first Mishnah that appears in the Tractate of Brachot, which is the first of the 63 tractates of Mishnah, also known as Oral Law. I want to call your attention to several other usages of the combination of Shema and Yisrael before we go back to look at the prayer which so embodies Jewish faith. The first that I want to mention appears in Dvarim 5.1, and in fact, it is the first place in the Torah in which the juxtaposition of Shema and Yisrael appear together in that order. And the Pasuk reads, V'yikra Moshe al kol Yisrael v'yomer alehem, Shema Yisrael et ha-chukim ve mishpatim asher anochi dover ba'aznechem hayom u'lamadetem otam u'shmartem la'asotam. Moshe summoned all the Israelites and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the laws and rules that I proclaim to you this day. Study them and observe them faithfully. First of all, it's interesting that Moshe uses Shema Yisrael, not Shmor Yisrael, which would mean to obey or keep. It seems to suggest that listening is a prerequisite to obeying from within. It is not meant only to manifest itself externally, but the process of obeying must actually begin internally with listening. I also find it interesting that one chapter previously, an inverted command of Shema Yisrael, in other words, Yisrael Shema, appears in Dvarim 4.1. And the Pasuk reads as follows, And now, O Israel, give heed to the laws and rules that I am instructing you to observe, so that you may live to enter and occupy the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. In this one verse, which has the inverted Shema Yisrael, in other words, Yisrael Shema, right, that they must listen and give heed to the laws and rules that God is going to teach, that God is going to teach through Moshe, in order to live and enter the land. So there's a juxtaposition there of accepting the mitzvot, recognizing God, of course, in the mitzvot, keeping the mitzvot, and only then entering the land. This pasuk with the inverted Yisrael Shema introduces the Ten Commandments in the version presented in Devarim. And it reinforces what I mentioned above, 
Listening is key to obeying. It's key to building a relationship that involves more than passive obeyance or passive acceptance. It is not the na'asev nishma model that I will outline below. In other words, we will do and only then will we listen. But it's actually nishma v'na'aseh. In other words, we will listen as a prerequisite for doing. Moshe is teaching them another way, a new way of accessing a relationship with the divine through nishma, listen first, in order to truly do from a place within, not just externally. The next reference I want to refer to is the one that is most popular, Dvarim 6, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, it's 6-4. And we know that Shema reflects a declaration of faith, the submission to the yoke of heaven. It comes uh, after listening to the mitzvot. It's a quintessential na'asev nishma. In other words, we will do and then we will hear. We will accept whatever you tell us to do and only then will we begin to listen. And so it shows, again, the quintessential blind faith and it is uh, often the last prayer that a person will say before death, say the Shema before saying uh, confession. Um, it is on the uh, mouth of Jews as they're being led to their deaths. Again, it really represents uh, a foundation of faith in the Jewish people and their God. Now we will move to our Parsha, Parshat Akev, where the cycle of reward and punishment will circle around the motifs of listening and then doing. So if we take a look at chapter 7, verse 12, what we see here is, it's the opening to our parsha, parshat Ekev, Ekev tishmu'un et ha'mishpatim ha'ela, u'shmartem va'asitem otam, v'shamar Adonai lohecha lecha tabrit v'atachesed asher nishva la'avotecha. And if you do obey these rules and observe them carefully, the Lord your God will maintain faithfully for you the covenant that he made on oath with your fathers. In chapter 7, what we have is the prerequisite or the condition. If we listen to the laws and then we do them, right? Again, the nishma v'na'aseh, we're going back and forth, we're flip-flopping between na'aseh nishma and nishma v'na'aseh, Although, as I already pointed out, chapter 4 and chapter 5 have the Nishma v'na'aseh model before flipping in chapter 6 to the Shema, which has the na'aseh v'nishma, right? The listening will come after the doing. So we have both this flip-flopping between accepting the uh, mitzvot and then listening to God, doing the mitzvot and then listening to God. Again, this, this flip-flopping between doing and listening, listening and doing. And here we have the idea that you will listen and then you will do and then God will maintain the covenant. In chapter 9, we have uh, yet the third iteration of Shema Yisrael. We saw it once in chapter 5, then again in chapter 6 with the classic Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. And finally in chapter 9, at least within this opening unit of the book of Dvarim, we again have the juxtaposition of Shema in Yisrael. Shema Yisrael, ata uver hayom et hayarden, lavod lareshet goyim gdolim v'atsumim imecha, here, O Israel, you are about to cross the Jordan to go in and dispossess nations greater and more populous than you, great cities with walls city high. And so here what we have is um, Shema Yisrael, which framed the acceptance of mitzvot in chapters 4 and 5, the acceptance of God in Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Achad, and finally in this chapter and verse, the Shema Yisrael, 
before entering the land. So going into the land only happens after we accept the mitzvot as our model for action, we accept submission to God as a prerequisite, and only then go into the land. Chapter 11, the second paragraph of Shema Vayayim Shamoa Tishma'u, and it will be if you will listen to the mitzvot, etc., etc. We uh, have the second paragraph of Shema in its entirety. It starts out with the motif word Shema, if you will listen, right? What is interesting is that the structure of the prayer Shema first presents accepting the yoke of heaven, the Shema Yisrael, followed va'ahafta eight, et Hashem Elokecha, that uh, you will love the Lord your God, which is in chapter 6, immediately after Shema Yisrael, with the juxtaposition suggesting that love stands behind accepting the yoke of heaven. While fear of consequence, which appears in chapter 11, v'hayayim shamoa tishmau, if you will surely listen, if you will heed the word of God, then you will be rewarded, and if you don't, you will be punished, uh, is the motivating factor here in this paragraph of Shema, um, the idea that there is an insistence and a consequence to not submitting to the intricacies of multiple laws, restrictions, and mitzvot, which were not presented previously in the uh, paragraphs of Shema or Shema Yisrael or Yisrael Shema that were presented, and specifically not in the Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad Vahafta Etat Hashem Elokecha, right? This idea of listening to the word of God out of love. Only here in chapter 11 do we have the next stage in which fear enters, the fear of consequence. So Yosef Heinemann, who's a commentator on, on Torah, suggests that love is superior to fear and thus must, thus must precede fear as the motivating force in submitting to God's will. Nachama Leibovitch suggests that love of God is up to the individual, but accepting the yoke of mitzvot is only conceivable in a society in which, for the most part, govern people living within families and communities and countries. In other words, that first the Torah pre- presents or the structure of the prayer of Shema presents the love of God by the individual, and only afterwards the manifestation of that love through living in a society, and that to some degree is built on reward and punishment, on consequence of action. There are four mitzvot associated with the entirety of Shema, with its different passages reflecting the love and fear, the yoke and submission, as well as reward and punishment. Two out of three require the words of Shema to literally be placed upon the body through tefillin or on the lintels of the home through mezuzah. Physical manifestations of the submission to God's word and acceptance of the covenant. The third, the articulation of the Shema itself, defines the morning and the evening by framing the day and forcing the person to listen to the words of Shema that come out of his mouth, both in the beginning and at the end of his day. The fourth mitzvah, also associated with Shema, is learning Torah, which is where the passages of Shema, of course, originate, and are for all places and at all times. The Sifre mentions that these mitzvot around the Shema are meant to continue distinguishing us when we were in exile. The text of the Sifre reads as follows. Though I exile you from the land, continue to be distinguished in the practice of mitzvot, so that when you return home, they will not be new to you. The Sifre continues, because this was a mashal and a nimshal, a parable and a message to the parable, and so now we've had the introduction and we're going to read the parable. This may be compared to the parable of a king who became angry with his wife, so that she went back to her father's house, said he to her, adorn yourself with your ornaments, so that when you return home they will not be new to you. 
Similarly, the Holy One, blessed be he, said to Israel, My sons, be distinguished by mitzvot, so that when you come back, they should not be new to you. To this Jeremiah alluded when he said, Set you up signs, Jeremiah 31.20. End of text. This affair is quite puzzling, implying as it does that the mitzvot are only ornaments or placeholders until the exile ends, and they begin to mean something again. I would like to go deeper and suggest that the parable with the king and the wife might hold the key to understanding another layer in the nimshal, or message, of the parable. The ornaments are symbols of the love, devotion, and fidelity, and were given by the king to the queen, so that the fact that he asks her to continue wearing her ornaments is not so much that she be comfortable in them while in exile from his affection, but that she remember the relationship and allow it to continue to shape her, even when she is alienated from his presence. The commentary, the Haktav Vahakabalah, suggests that it is meant to give her hope, but I want to go further. It is not only hope that she will return to him. Wearing these ornaments on her body will structure her identity and the choices she makes as she remembers that while separated, they are still very much connected to one another. When she returns, it will remind him that she has remembered him during the exile. What is missing to me from the parable is what is the king doing to remember his wife? How is he going to remember to call her back to him? I would suggest that that idea is very much prevalent in our continuing to do mitzvot after the destruction and the exile from the land. In other words, the parable and the message to the parable do not line up perfectly. This is an idea developed by Simi Peters in her wonderful book, How to Read Midrash, that the mashal and the nimshal never exactly line up so that you can find the gap between them and discover another layer of message. And here I think the other layer the message that is missing from the parable is exactly what will spur the king to remember his queen. In other words, what will spur God to remember his people. And that will be through the ornaments, or in other words, the mitzvot. It works in two directions. The mitzvot distinguish us in our relationship with God, both in the land of Israel and outside of the land, whether we are in his good graces or have fallen from grace. They remind us of his presence and our fidelity to his command. And perhaps what distinguishes the mashal from the nimshal is that the mitzvot have the ability to remind God of our continued relationship with him, even when we have traveled far from his presence. They will ultimately be what spurs him to gather us up and return us to the land as his people, as promised towards the end of Devarim. In addition to the cycle of reward and punishment is a cycle that is very much prevalent throughout the end of Dvarim as Moshe draws to the end of his life, which is the cycle of return, of tshuva. And that will only happen if we continue to maintain in some way a relationship with God, to continue trying to listen, the Shema Yisrael that we articulate in the morning and at night when we put our our tefillin and when we build our houses and attach mezuzot to the doorpost, ultimately will not only remind us, but will remind God. It is at the foundation of our relationship to listen to one for one another. The mitzvot around Shema, which both internally and externally manifest this relationship, serve as paradigms for physical action. It is through the language of Shema, which represents, to my mind, both the listening and the speaking, 
through which we create an intimate relationship with God and with one another. It is to Eliyahu and Avi, Elijah, that God reveals the kol de mamadaka, or the silent, still voice, in which Eliyahu has to actively hear God before continuing to engage in conversation. In other words, we might think God's voice should be manifest through loudness, through something powerful. But what God reveals to Elijah and then passes on to us so many thousands of years later is that God is not in earthquakes and not in wind and not in fire. God is in a silent, still voice. The Kol Mama Daka and the Pasuk in Kings 1, chapter 19, verse 13 continues. Only after the Kol Mama Daka is heard, we're told, Eliyahu. Eliyahu has to actively hear it before continuing on. Listening, Rabbi Sachs notes, has a spiritual quality that the other senses sometimes mask. It is what modern psychology has taught us is at the heart of a good relationship. Parents listening to children, spouses to their partners, teachers to students, employers to employees. Listening doesn't mean agreeing, doesn't mean agreeing, but it does mean acknowledging and validating the other person. It means having and being in a relationship. Our relationship with God, we're told, in the beginning of Devarim and in the middle and at the end, and particularly in this week's Torah portion, begins with listening. And that really is at the heart of every relationship that has potential for growth and meaning.